Yeah, or on your, or you, oh, let's, yes. Today we'd uh, like to welcome Stuart Shapiro from the MITRE Corporation. Uh, Stuart has been working in security, privacy, especially privacy, for quite some time. Before joining MITRE, he was specializing in healthcare privacy, working in a, in a company in that area. Uh, before that, uh, Stuart spent some time in academia, uh, most recently at RPI. Stuart has a PhD from Carnegie Mellon, and to prove that he is no stranger to the Midwest, his undergraduate work was at Northwestern. So, Stuart. Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, I will apologize for my voice. I am just uh, on the tail end of a cold, so I know it sounds nasally. I may take a break every now and then to have a coughing fit. You know, sorry, please bear with me. Um, all right, well, I'm pleased to be here, uh, particularly since um, I actually grew up in South Bend. So Indiana and, and uh, uh, Purdue are, are, are no strangers to me, although I suppose I should admit that my father was a professor at Indiana University at South Bend. So uh, if you want to throw rotten fruit and vegetables at this point, that's perfectly fine. Or you can wait till the end of the pre presentation uh, <clears throat> and throw those. All right, well, first and foremost, I want to emphasize the fact that there were a lot of other people involved in developing what I'm going to be talking about today. And I was just one of them. And in particular, because I'm going to be emphasizing the security part of the uh, framework, uh, Deb Badeau and Rich Graubart in particular uh, did a lot of the heavy lifting on that. And so I want to duly acknowledge that, um, lest anybody walk out of the room thinking that this was basically my show. All right, so this is what I'm going to cover. And please, if you have questions or comments or, or, or um, uh, exclamations of dismay, please uh, feel free to interrupt. Um, I'm going to talk about why. I'm going to talk about what. I'm going to talk about how. And then I'm going to finish up with a couple of concrete examples, or at least somewhat concrete. Uh, so hopefully you get a better um, uh, understanding or appreciation of how this uh, all works. So. Why have we developed this thing uh, we call the MITRE Information Policy Framework? Um, well, before I get to that, I need to tell you a little bit about MITRE's environment. Uh, for those of you who don't know, MITRE is a not-for-profit corporation that operates three federally funded research and development centers. Uh, we do contract technical research and consulting principally, although not exclusively, for various parts of the federal government. And yes, that includes the usual suspects, DOD, the intelligence community, uh, but it also includes the um, civil side. Uh, we do stuff for the FAA, we do stuff for, for VA, for HHS, um, uh, what have you. Um, we have about 6,000 employees in two main campuses, one in the D.C. area, one up in uh, Bedford, Massachusetts, because that's where Hanscom Air Force Base is, and that's where the uh, Air Force Electronic Systems Center is. Uh, we have about 70 site offices around the world. Most of them are in the U.S., as you might expect, but because we support uh, DOD and the intelligence community, we go where they go, and so we do have site offices um, uh, in other countries. And we have a lot of people who are what I call embedded in sponsor organizations. 
And what I mean by that is they spend most, if not all, of their time actually on location at the sponsor site. We refer to our government customers as sponsors. It's part of the whole FFRDC ethos, uh, just in case you're wondering. Uh, so we have a lot of people who spend most or all of their time at the sponsor location uh, getting back to MITRE physically uh, very infrequently, uh, if at all. And so the bottom line is uh, we're a big or organization. We're a highly dispersed and distributed organization. Uh, we're a highly mobile organization. Uh, and that makes for a fairly complex policy environment. So to give you some background where this thing came from, uh, depend depending on your perspective, it's either a brainchild or a demon spawn. Um, uh, over the last several years, um, there was a perceived need for greater sponsor access to MITRE information resources. Sponsors getting direct access to our intranet, being able to uh, get materials, being able to check on the availability of staff, all that actually has some interesting privacy issues attached to it. Um, as I noted, uh, we're, we're, as virtually everybody is these days, we're a highly mobile workforce. People work from their homes. People work at sponsor locations. People work on the road all the time. Um, and we were increasingly interested in uh, uh, digitalizing our work processes. So rather than doing things by filling out forms, uh, doing things electronically wherever possible, um, you know, using digital signature instead of pen and ink, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so what this pointed us toward as we were evolving our new and improved MITRE enterprise architecture uh, was uh, greater integration with sponsors and partners, um, an impetus to, to, to manage our, our uh, business processes and our work processes uh, digitally. Um, and uh, to enhance collaboration, enhance sharing, well, of course, we all know sharing is the big thing these days, uh, both the private sector, especially in the public sector, post 9-11, share, share, share. People aren't sharing information enough. You've got to share. You've got to collaborate. Okay, all well and good. But greater sponsor access to MITRE information resources can lead to potentially unauthorized access to information. You don't want sponsors getting access to information that they have no business having access uh, to, and that could include information about MITRE itself or MITRE staff. It could also include information about other MITRE sponsors who don't want other MITRE sponsors to, to have uh, that information. Um, sharing becomes very complex um, in an environment where uh, decisions are no longer binary. Um, because despite all the rhetoric, it's really not the case that whereas before we didn't share and now we're sharing, rather it's, it's in that murky gray area in between. Uh, you want to share appropriately. You want to make sure the right people have the right information at the right time for the right purposes. Um, that's a lot more difficult than just saying yes or no. And, and, and so uh, that, that um, engenders um, complexity. And then, of course, there's all that mobility, including home use. Um, you know, uh, somebody um, connects to the MITRE intranet via their home computer to check their email. Unbeknownst to them, uh, their, uh, their teenage son or daughter has down, inadvertently downloaded some malware onto their system, and suddenly we've got malware running through our intranet and contaminating our systems, and that's not a good thing. Um, so, the motivation. Well, 
um, what, what, a lot of what I've just said really goes to the notion of this is a changing world. Um, I should say that we've been working on this thing for about three years now. Uh, so, I mean, even going back then, it was clear the world w was drastically changing. Um, in particular, with respect to the need for sharing information and infrastructure, while at the same time maintaining security, maintaining privacy. Um, also dealing with the need for technological convergence, for interoperability, uh, the fact that we have new threats cropping up uh, all the time, in, including um, uh, if you're uh, talking about uh, cyber or information warfare, uh, the deliberate corruption of information. Uh, and in some cases, it's actually potentially more effective rather than bringing down an adversary systems, corrupt the, the critical information that they're making decisions based on. Well, when we looked around at our internal environment at MITRE, what we saw standing next to this changing world was a situation characterized by piecemeal policy development. Um, a lot of what we called point policies. Um, when a specific issue got raised, a policy got written, it got instantiated. So, you know, uh, specific types of information under um, uh, in, in a specific form should be handled so-and-so, uh, you know, information with these characteristics can ha gets handled in such a way uh, if you're using this technology or that technology, then you have to do this, that, or the other thing. But uh, they were isolated policies in the sense they were generated one by one. Oh, we've now got PDAs. Well, we better have a PDA policy. Uh, oh, well, here's HIPAA, uh, the, 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 the um, uh, health insurance um, Portability and Accountability Act with the privacy and security rules. Oh, well, we've got to deal with that, too. Uh, so we've been doing this stuff on, on a relatively ad, in a relatively ad hoc way. Um, and what we decided we needed um, uh, was a way of systematically analyzing our information policy space. Um, that was risk-based. Um, and, and that was closely aligned with the infrastructure, but it was different from the infrastructure. We've got plenty of people at MITRE who worry about protecting our information infrastructure. Um, we had much fewer people uh, outside of the, the special security people who worry about classified government information. We, we had much fewer people who were worried about protecting information. And that's what we had to deal with, and we needed to do it in a comprehensive and a systematic way uh, for no other reason than we had to be able to tell the people working on the next generation of our information infrastructure, uh, the, MITRE, uh, the new MITRE Enterprise architecture, we had to be able to tell them what the thing needed to support. Um, you know, somebody asked them, well, you know, what... what uh, um, what policies is the infrastructure going to support? And the tech, technical people came back with, well, you tell us what the policies are, and we'll figure out what the infrastructure requirements are. Don't look at us to do the policy. So that's the MIPF in a nutshell. It provides a conceptual tool for helping MITRE uh, and, and potentially other organizations because we're trying to come up with a generic version of this for use in sponsor environments. Uh, it's something which helps us systematically get a handle on our information policy space and to systematically formulate and analyze information policies. All right. Well, I've been talking in very grand, abstract, nebulous terms. Let me talk about what it actually is. Um, 
It supports the writing of policies for unclassified information. It does not write the policies. The minor information policy framework, you, you, you don't turn a crank and you get the information policies out the other end. Rather, it's a, a, a structured mechanism for helping people to think about information policies and to make sure that they've systematically covered the entire information policy space. Um, as I said, it focuses on information. It doesn't focus on systems. Systems are, are other people's responsibility. Uh, this is aimed uh, purely at information. Um, and what it does is identifies a set of factors that drive policy. Basically, we sat down and we asked each other, okay, what do our information policies or should our information policies depend on? What are the drivers? What, what, what factors, what attributes do we need to know in order to figure out what the policy is or what the policy should be? Um, and all those things have to do with properties and risks associated with users who manipulate information under certain conditions. That is to say, if you look at the drivers, they basically fall into three categories. They're properties of the information, they're properties about the users, or they're properties that speak to the context of usage. And there are a bunch of those under each of those uh, categories. And you see some of the, um, uh, some of the um, examples there. I'm, I'm going to get into that more in a moment. Um, so the idea here is essentially to do risk management properly, uh, which is to say we don't want to underprotect information, but we don't want to overprotect it either. And that can be a tricky juggling act. But, but that's, that's the sweet spot, if you will. That's where you want to be. You want all your information protected, uh, handled to an appropriate level. No more, no less. Uh, because you know, if, if, if you have too little protection, then clearly you're exposing yourself to more risk than you want to. If you have too much protection, then you're wasting resources. <clears throat> Finally, and very importantly, um, the MIPF is technology independent or technology neutral. Uh, as you'll see, th this thing was developed at a relatively high degree of abstraction. Um, not, not because uh, we enjoy abstraction, although we do, um, but because we decided it was vitally important to get a, a, a more or less clean separation between the policy and the technology that implements the policy. So. The framework itself is technology neutral, and as you burrow down, you eventually get to implementation details. Um, all right, so as I said, it covers unclassified information. It covers it in all its forms. It's not just electronic. Uh, we have a lot of paper files lying around, just like any other large organization. Um, uh, and, um, you know, we... Uh, uh, we give talks. Um, you know, uh, anybody at MITRE who wants to uh, prepare and deliver formal remarks has to get them through our public release process. For, um, so we have information in all sorts of different forms, and the framework is meant to cover all of them, not just digital, not just electronic. All right, so the framework helps us establish uh, policies in five areas. Uh, security, and <clears throat> we've done this so that it's more or less consistent with NIST 853 uh, guidance. <clears throat> Privacy, stewardship sharing, and information management. And it's hierarchical. The lower level policies are derived from the higher level policies, and, and, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. Um, 
So we, we, we talk about 1A, 1B, and 2A, 2B. Uh, 1A is the highest level. It's general policies, general principles that basically uh, apply to the entire information policy space of MITRE. Um, the 1B level are what we call policy interpretations. They're the actual abstract operational policy requirements. Um, they're, 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 they're at the level of if this, then do that, essentially. And as I said, there's technology independence here. So all of that level one is, and that's what I'm talking about uh, today here, um, all of that level one stuff is technology neutral. Uh, we tried very hard to avoid talking about anything that, that actually had to do with concrete technologies. So what basically happens is we construct maps. We construct maps from the, from the drivers to the requirements uh, based on a risk model. And we start out with principles. We established a bunch of high-level principles uh, which act as guidance for the information policy space. The overarching principles cover the entire space. The requirements specific principles apply <coughs> to uh, those specific areas, and lest anybody get scared, no, I'm not going to go through each and every one of these. Uh, what I am going to do is talk briefly about the information security principles. <clears throat> these are the principles we came up with. Um, uh, they're not rocket science to anybody who has any experience with InfoSec. Um, you know, individuals... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, will be identified and authenticated uh, to the extent appropriate before they're allowed to access information. Uh, you will check to make sure that they're authorized to access that information before you grant access. Uh, information in transit shall be appropriately protected. Information at rest shall be appropriately protected. Um, information shall be destroyed uh, to make it sufficiently uh, un unrecoverable. Uh, you'll have accountability, you have non-repudiation. <clears throat> you know, probably all of this stuff um, is familiar to everybody in this room. Now, one thing you'll notice is you see the phrase to the extent appropriate over and over and over again. And that's because at this level, we can't make any hard and fast determinations about what the appropriate level is. And remember what I was saying about we're, we're aiming for that sweet spot. We don't want to underprotect. We don't want to overprotect. We want to have policy requirements that hit the right level. And so the principles, um, uh, to, uh, the principles frequently have that phrase in them, to the extent appropriate. And the trick is, surprise, surprise, figuring out uh, what the appropriate extent is. Okay, so I've talked about why, I've talked about what. Does anybody have any questions before I get into the nitty-gritty? Yeah, ready? Uh, the chief engineer of my uh, division, um, uh, one of his pet peeves is people who put up PowerPoint eye charts and then say, I'm sorry, I know this is an eye chart. And his response to that is, well, if you knew it was an eye chart, why the heck did you put it up in the first place? Um, nevertheless, it's hard to get away from that in this context because the framework actually is represented as PowerPoints. Um, <clears throat> It, it, we, real, we really didn't make a hard and fast 
clear determination that that was how we were going to do it. We, kind of, we actually started with a 40-page annotated word outline. Um, but as time went on, basically, we just kept generating PowerPoints and PowerPoints, which actually articulated uh, the framework. And so a lot of what you're about to see actually comes uh, in one form or another from the framework representation itself. This is the framework. It, 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 it exists as literally hundreds of PowerPoint slides with lots of tables and lots of fine print and, and all that stuff. <clears throat> All right, so you've got policy drivers, and they're mapped onto principle-based policy interpretations. And the outputs of those are basically one of two things. They're either permissions, yes you can, no you can't, maybe you can, depending on something else, or they're levels of controls. All right, You need to have authentication of this strength. You need to have... Um, uh, <clears throat> You need to have um, uh, storage protection of, of, of the strength, that, that kind of thing. Um, so the framework um, at this level, at the 1B level, is a whole bunch of two-dimensional tables where the drivers are on the axes and the cells essentially are indicating what the policy requirements are. And so you start to get a sense uh, from this, of how this helps us um, systematically deal with the entire uh, information policy space. Because what we've essentially done is constructed a slew of tables which we think appropriately represent that space, and now we've got to worry about what, should, what, if anything, should go in each and every one of those cells. And that tends to focus the mind when you have lots and lots of tables in front of you, knowing that you've got to figure out what goes into each, and one, of, each one of those cells. So to go through this example here really quickly, um, this is an access uh, control decision. Uh, are we going to grant access um, <coughs> to particular information? Well, first off, um, information sensitivity, I'm, 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 on that, uh, <coughs> I'm on this uh, red thing here. Um, so we, we, we uh, contrast sensitivity and user category. Okay, in this example, it's a minor employee wanting access to highly sensitive personal data. Um, uh, in terms of user type, okay, we've got a conditional yes. But we have to worry about other stuff. We have to worry about context. Uh, platform level of concern, actually, that's now, we're now calling it system mistrust. Basically, um, how, how, how much do we distrust the platform that this request is coming in from, that the information is go going to be, uh, is, is going to. In this case, we're saying it's a MITRE-owned platform, so uh, we have a relatively low level of mistrust. We have a, a, a reasonable degree of control over it. <clears throat> and so we say, okay, uh, based on um, the platform, yeah, you can still have access. But wait, we're not done. Uh, we have to look at channel vulnerability. The request is coming in over a communications channel of some kind. What's the vulnerability of that channel? Uh, well, in this case, maybe it's the internet. So that's a highly vulnerable channel. And we're, look, we're accessing, uh, or we're proposing to access highly sensitive information. And what that translates into is um, uh, an enhanced level of in-transit in protection. Finally, um, 
uh, we also have to worry about authentication based on the channel vulnerability. Uh, again, this is highly sensitive information going across a highly vulnerable channel. So in addition to the um, in-transit uh, communication protection, we want a high level, an enhanced level of authentication. We want to make darn sure that the person or the entity that we think is at the other end of this connection is, in fact, that entity. And if, all, if we have all of this, we have the conditional yeses, we have the enhanced um, channel protection, we have the enhanced authentication, if all of that is true, then we finally come to a decision, yes, we are going to allow that. Now... It's, it's important to note that all these tables are intended for use by application developers in terms of trying to automate policy enforcement or, or to appropriately develop infrastructure capabilities. Uh, it's for use by policy writers. Uh, we're actually developing pros policies which cover maybe 20% of these tables, but they're the 20% which, which, uh, <clears throat> which people at MITRE are going to, to, to be using 80% um, of the time. Uh, the idea is not that Joe Average or Josephine Average is going to be uh, looking at these things uh, because they are not user-friendly, believe me. All right, so here are the drivers, and you see the three categories I talked about before. And when you select v values for these various uh, drivers, and, and, and it's not always the case that... that you, you need a value for each one of these, depending on the situation. Some of these become irrelevant, and so you don't need a value. But as you select values for these drivers, you are essentially constructing the scenario. That's where the whole scenario business comes from. Uh, what the framework helps you do is to systematically and comprehensively construct information policy scenarios by virtue of these various drivers, and then think about, okay, given that this is the scenario sort of formally defined in terms of these drivers, what do my policy requirements have to be? Well, let me just go through some of these drivers very quickly to give you um, a flavor of them. Um, we had to develop a categorization for information types. Uh, the type of information sometimes has, um, sometimes has relevance for, uh, for the policies. And so uh, these are the categories we came up with. Um, uh, so um, most of these are, are pretty straightforward. Uh, I'll mention custodial, contractual. Uh, uh, some, <coughs> excuse me. Sometimes MITRE assists the government in source selection, that is, in choosing a vendor for some information technology product. And so as part of that function, we'll get a lot of proprietary information from the different vendors who are bidding for the contract. And so that information has to be protected appropriately. And so that's why that, that's called out as a separate category. Uh, I'll also mention the personal use non-MITRE. Unlike a lot of organizations, um, <clears throat> MITRE accepts that its employees are going to use MITRE information technology resources on occasion for personal purposes, okay? I mean, uh, you know, the alternative is to either pretend it's not happening or to try and impose such draconian, draconian controls that people aren't going to be able to do their jobs. So we basically said, you know, we're all adults, we're all professionals, we, we accept that a certain limited amount of appropriate personal use is okay. And... Given that, we expect 
I'm not sure expect is the right word, um, we recognize that people may put personal information on our systems, which has nothing to do with their jobs, has nothing to do with MITRE. And so that's that last category down here. Um, and we, ha we have some policy statements about that. Mainly they're policy statements to the effect of MITRE bears no responsibility for personal information that people willingly put on our systems that MITRE didn't ask for and has nothing to do with their jobs. Um, but we, we, we do explicitly recognize it. Um, this is a breakdown of the administrative personal <clears throat> information. We, we had to come up with a bunch of subtypes because in this area we were dealing with privacy uh, as, well as, uh, as well as security, and we had to break it down finer. Now, I'm not, <clears throat> I think most of these are pretty self-evident what they are, um, but I, wanted to, um, I do want <clears throat> to stress the distinction that we made between MITRE-specific and MITRE-independent. Uh, personal information. There is personal information uh, which adheres to me in the context of MITRE, which has absolutely no meaning outside of MITRE. My employee number, for example, my office number. Um, there is personal information about me which is independent of MITRE, my social security number, my bank accounts, what have you. And so we, we, we made this distinction between the personal information which people end up with end up um, ends up adhering to people because they work at MITRE versus the personal information that they carry with them, and that's going to be with them uh, after that. That was with them before they came to MITRE. It's going to be with them after they leave MITRE. And the reason we do that is because while we may be willing to accept a particular level of residual risk with respect to the MITRE-specific information, because that's information that MITRE generates we're probably less willing to accept uh, a particular level of residual risk, or, or actually I should put it another way, we're, we're, we're probably want less residual risk for the MITRE independent information, because that's personal information that goes with people. We had to define sensitivity levels for our information, and that's based on impact, on the impact of information disclosure. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and so basically, you know, it goes from none uh, all the way up to, um, uh-oh, we've broken a laws, we violated HIPAA, we violated a contract, uh, we've done something which has caused great sponsor embarrassment, um, and uh, that uh, is by definition high sensitivity uh, information. Um, since I've been talking about communication channel vulnerability, I just thought I'd let you see what that one looks like. So it goes all the way from very low, which is to say the channel is slightly vulnerable, um, and the, uh, the, the set of potential attackers is very limited, all the way to uh, the vulnerability is very high, it's potentially very vulnerable to interception, the, uh, the, uh, the set of potential attack attackers is virtually limitless. And <clears throat> excuse me. And so here you see uh, some of that rendered more concrete. So, some examples of channels. Uh, I'll call out the mail. Remember, this is meant to apply to information. It's all in all its forms, not just electronic. So, you know, the 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 mail is a communication channel. And so we have to, uh, uh, if something is going through the mail, we need to make an assessment regarding the vulnerability of that channel. 
Um, another one, and these are going to come out in the examples, um, information flow complexity. Um, <clears throat> this one was kind of tricky to, to, to come up with, um, but um, it, it, it's, it, has, it has to do with, um, with malware, essentially. Um, and the idea was, well, if you've got a device, and the device is only capable of dealing with plain text, you know, the opportunities for malware attack are pretty limited, if, if not non-existent. On the other hand, if you've got a, a fully a full-blown laptop or a full-blown server, and it's got lots of ports and they're open and all that stuff, um, and, and and you know you can do all basically any protocol you want is going across this thing, um, then that's a love that that's high information flow complexity, and that affects uh, the um, that affects the context, and that impacts uh, what your requirements are going to have to be. All right, so <clears throat> all of that was kind of leading up to this. In figuring out what the requirements should be, we use a basic risk model. And it's, it, it's embedded in this framework where contacts are going from very low to very high. And we, we, we arranged it so that very low is always better than very high from a risk standpoint. Um, and you've got information sensitivity or criticality, and again, none is good, high is, is bad. And so we developed this general strategy indicating what level of controls we thought we were going to need for each of these circumstances, given the risk, uh, given the contextual risk, given the risk in uh, some of the uh, other drivers, um, at what level should the control, should the, do we need... Do we need any controls? Do we need basic controls? Do we need moderate control or intermediate controls? Um, do we need um, enhanced controls? <clears throat> All right, so this is this lists the actual security policy interpretations. So basically what you see in this left-hand column here is these are all the discrete requirements, policy requirements falling under security. Uh, that the, the framework helps us generate. And you see in the second column, well, okay, th this is the form that the requirement takes, or, or th these are the values that the requirement takes. Yeah, it's either, uh, as I said before, it's either a permission or it's a, uh, le a level of control. And these are the risk drivers for that particular requirement. Those are the risk drivers for, for that particular policy interpretation. As I said before, uh, <clears throat> You're, you're, for, any given, for any given requirement, for any given policy interpretation, you're not going to need all the drivers. Most of them are going to be irrelevant. And we had to sit down and figure out, well, which ones are relevant? And so, you know, for example, um, you know, user authorization to access, uh, we determined that the uh, relevant risk drivers were user type, information sensitivity, and information type. So those are the drivers. Those determine the risk, and those determine... Um, uh, what, uh, what permissions or controls you end up with as a requirement. So this is what a control looks like. Um, and um, I'm actually not going to be talking anymore about authentication, but I just wanted to throw this in. Um, you'll see some other controls um, uh, in, in the examples. Uh, but I wanted to throw this in to give you an, an idea of how even more complicated 
this gets when you actually sit down and try to think through this stuff systematically. We started out with basic, intermediate, and enhanced levels of authentication. Okay? You know, minimal linkage between minimal binding between user and authenticator, sort of moderate binding between user and authenticator, extreme binding, you know. The more we thought about it, the more we realized there are actually multiple dimensions to authentication. And we actually came up with half a dozen. We identified half a dozen. Um, you know, binding is obviously obviously there. But there's replay protection, there's session validation, there's user revalidation, all of this stuff. And basically what we decided was um, if an authentication mechanism is going to be basic or intermediate or enhanced, it's going to be considered that, then it's got to, uh, it's got to be that across all these different dimensions. Okay? So if, if your authentication mechanism is enhanced, then it's got to be enhanced for replay protection, it's got to be enhanced for binding, it's got to be enhanced for session validation, blah, blah, blah. Now, having said that, I will say there are actually a few very specific exceptions that, that we carved out as, as we went along. Uh, but, but that's basically the way it goes. Okay, so that, that's basically the grisly details of this thing. Lots and lots of tables. We've got drivers, uh, which consist of risk factors, uh, attributes that attach to either the information, to the user, or to the context. Uh, we've got these principles, which we established in the different uh, policy requirements areas, um, including security. And, um, <coughs> and then basically, using that risk model that I put up, we then try and figure out what the specific policy interpretations are. Given that these are the drivers, given that this is the scenario, given, the, given that these are my principles, then what are my policy interpretations? What, what are my security requirements? So let me go through a couple of really quick examples, and then uh, I will take questions if anybody's still awake. Um, in transit confidentiality protection. Um, Here's a very simple email scenario, all right? John works in human resources. He's working at home with his minor laptop. He needs to email some sensitive um, information that includes employee social security numbers to someone at MITRE. How should he protect the information? All right, well, this is how the framework helps answer this question. First of all, Information type and information sensitivity, these are two of the drivers. These are two of the risk drivers. Um, and so um, we look at the information type, which is personal work-related, and, oh, SSNs. That's high-sensitivity information, as well it should be. Okay, so we've established what's the sensitivity of the information is based on uh, the information type. All right, next thing we have to look at. Um, Communication channel vulnerability versus the information sensitivity. Well, uh, John is at home and he's connecting through the internet, therefore uh, the vulnerability is high and the information sensitivity is high. Therefore, you end up down here in this box in the corner which says that you need enhanced uh, communications channel protection because you've got high sensitivity information going across a highly vulnerable channel. So, finally, what does that actually mean in practice? <clears throat> well, this is the definition of enhanced um, 
uh, channel protection here. And here are some potential mechanisms. Now, it isn't until you get down into the um, 2A part of the framework, um, which, actually, which, depending on who you talk to, isn't really part of the framework. Uh, but it isn't until you get down to the implementation guidance that you actually start seeing specific technologies mentioned. So what we have here is a list of potential mechanisms that we could employ in order to achieve this enhanced um, uh, protection of the uh, communication channel. Um, you know, the, 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 the feeling, the considered opinion being that these things basically meet that abstract definition for enhanced protection. Um, and then in the implementation guidance, you would actually find a recommendation. Well, okay, then. I'm a minor employee. What am I supposed to use for enhanced channel protection? Well, we have PKI. And most of the time it actually works, surprise, surprise. Um, and so the implementation guidance would say use the, use the Meyer PKI for sending this stuff from your laptop over the Internet um, uh, to... Um, an employee at Meyer. Now, there might be more than one thing. I mean, it's perfectly possible that uh, the implementation guidance could offer you several options. And so it says, you know, and pick one. You know, all of these are okay. We've determined all of these satisfy uh, this definition, and so pick one. You know, maybe you, um, maybe you strong, strongly encrypt the email. Maybe you strongly encrypt, um, uh, strongly encrypt uh, uh, the information and attachment, you know, what have you. Okay, simpler example, last example, integrity protection. Remember, I was talking about how this was real, proved really tricky for us, um, and, and uh, you'll see why in a moment. So Tom has just gotten a PDA. He's gotten a trio, or he's gotten a BlackBerry, or I don't know what. Um, and it allows him to send and receive text-only messages. Um, it doesn't support you know, fancy protocols, doesn't support um, HTTP or any of that stuff, um, does he need to have a firewall or antivirus on this thing in order to connect to the MITRE network? Well, the complexity of information flow for that kind of device, a device that only deals with text, is low. It's, well, it's not low, it's very low. Uh, and therefore, Information filtering is not required, and malicious code controls are not required. Now you're going to say, well, hey, hang on a minute. What happened to the firewall? What happened to the antivirus? Well, remember, the framework is supposed to be technology neutral. We can't be talking about firewalls. We can't be talking about antivirus, at least not at the policy interpretation level. Um, and so we were faced with this dilemma of trying to abstract up from a firewall, you know, what, what is the abstract concept of a firewall? What is the abstract concept of antivirus? And what we came up with, um, for, for better or worse, was this notion of information filtering for the firewall. That is to say, a firewall is a technical mechanism for doing information filtering. And malicious code control for antivirus. That is, antivirus is a technical mechanism uh, for doing malicious code control. It is a type of malicious code control. Um, and so the answer is no to both. And so the answer to Tom is, um, 
you don't have to worry about. Of course, the fact of the matter is it may well be that uh, such things aren't available for your device in any case. Uh, so it's a good thing that, in fact, you don't have to worry about it uh, because you have very low information flow complexity and therefore you don't need information filtering uh, and, and you don't need um, uh, malicious code controls. Okay, so hopefully that gives you a, a better sense of how uh, this works in practice in terms of people actually figuring out what they're supposed to do. Um, uh, you know, as I said, we're developing pros policies to cover the vast majority, the most common cases, so uh, people uh, don't have to um, uh, lay eyes on the nastiness, uh, the, uh, the nasty representation of, of the framework. Um, Outside of that, they would probably consult with somebody who would consult with, with a member of the framework team, and we would do the machinations required to figure out, uh, okay, well, let's see, yeah, that's what you need. Um, now, at one level, you know, the, the, this is not rocket science, okay? It's a lot of tables, you know? It's, uh, it's some principles, it's some, it's some properties, and it's a whole bunch of tables, all right? But the important thing is what all of this put together, structured the way it is, allows us to do. It's something that we couldn't do before, and that is to systematically comb through our information policy space to make sure that we're actually considering um, every scenario, or at least every scenario that, that, that's feasible or plausible, um, to know that, that, that we, we, we've sort of step-by-step step gone through this, figured it out, and we figured out in each, for each and every one of those scenarios, for each and every one of those combinations of drivers, what are the security requirements um, at an abstract level? What are the privacy requirements? What are the information sharing requirements? Uh, what are the information stewardship requirements? All of that is at, at an abstract level, which then maps onto this implement. Oh, actually, it's the other way around. The implementation guidance maps on to, to, to those abstract um, requirements. And so, um, and, the, and, and, and that's absolutely vital because technology changes, it changes really fast. And if you build your technology into your policy, you're going to be changing your high-level policies really, really frequently. And if you have to go through any li anything like the consultation and approval chain that you have to go through at an organization like MITRE in order to get policy changes ratified, you don't want to be changing your high-level policy over and over and over and over again. And so the framework helps us draw that clean line between the policy in abstract terms and what and its requirements in abstract terms and what you actually need to do in technical terms. And so technology changes, fine. The stuff in the implementation guidance can change, and it can change as fast as, uh, at least for the uh, security requirements, it can change as fast as the people on the InfoSec committee can change it because they own it. They own, they own those, uh, those requirements, those uh, implementation um, requirements. But the rest, of the, the rest of the information policy space can remain untouched, even though you're getting all of that technical advance, all of that, all of that technological change. 
And that is really important in a complex environment. So people feel free to ask questions. We've got a few minutes left. Um, you may get a straight answer out of me. Or I might tap dance. Depends on whether I know what I'm talking about or not. They're just dazed. I have one. And, and it's something that I, I think I may have seen, um, seen an issue with this. Have you looked at information handling policies with respect to, for example, classified information? And how well does that match? I mean, are there things, and the reason I brought this up is because you had um, US mail as a moderate risk. The way you were supposed to trans, the way you were supposed to get classified information from one place to another, is you know classified paperwork mm -hmm. from one place to another is registered U.S. mail. Um, well, to, to what extent are there things that don't match some of the handling of the classified, and you know, and what's your interpretation of this? Is this a um, okay, I'm going to start tap dancing now. Um, I, I don't know if that's still the case, and obviously it depends on what classification level you're talking about. Um, however, um, well, let me say a couple of things. First of all, uh, no, we haven't looked at classified information. I mean, th this was designed purely for MITRE's unclassified environment, precisely because, as you well know, uh, there is lots and lots of very strict government uh, guidance about how you handle classified information, uh, and we don't have anything to say about it. Um, well, actually, we do, because uh, Rich Graubart, who is one of the people on the framework team, uh, basically wrote the uh, InfoSec guidelines for the entire U.S. intelligence community. Uh, but be that as it may, officially, uh, we, we, we don't get any say in it. Um, having said that, um, we are interested in um, sort of genericizing this thing, um, sort of providing a, um, uh, if you will, a naked framework. Uh, which sponsors or could populate, or we could help sponsors populate with their specific, um, uh, to, to reflect their specific environment, uh, their specific risk model, their specific uh, policy interpretations, their specific uh, requirements. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet, um, but, but that is something um, uh, we're interested in doing. Um, and finally, um, I'll say, you know, the framework is, is, is this is absolute, absolutely vital to understand. The framework is a living thing, all right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea here was not that once we were done with this, we were done for all eternity. Um, things change, uh, new scenarios arise, circumstances change. We rethink scenarios and we have done, we've had several occasions where we sat down and said, um, Okay, do we still think that makes sense? And some of the cases we said yes, and some of the cases we said no. Actually, that doesn't make sense. And so we're going to we're going to adjust that value this way or that way uh, because this is leading us to uh, this is leading us to places uh, w w which aren't sensible to us. Ultimately, it's a matter of judgment. I mean. 
the, the, this thing is meant to make the process more systematic, more comprehensive, uh, to structure it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, ultimately, it's people making judgments about risk and people making judgments about what, uh, what, what the appropriate risk drivers are for a particular uh, requirement, uh, what, what the appropriate principles are uh, from which to derive uh, the policy interpretations. Um, you know, uh, you know the, 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 this is by no means algorithmic. It's by no means automated. You don't turn a crank, as I said, and the policy, you know, you don't feed in, I'm not sure what you would feed in at, at, at the front end, and you don't turn the crank and the policies come out the other end. Um, it's, it, more than anything else, the, the, the framework is a conceptual tool, tool. It's a cognitive tool in some ways for helping us to think better and more systematically about these issues. But at the end of the day, it always comes down to human judgment. And um, as a result, we've had some pretty lively discussions about, uh, about the contents of some of these cells. discussions and have you come up with either cases where exist I mean I, I presume at some point you've looked at existing policies as you've been building this framework. Have you come in, up with cases either where you said, well here's the existing policy and the framework would say something different and and geez there's something really messed up in coming up with the framework or the other way around where it's like well the framework says this and the existing policy and on further thought, the existing policy was just way out of whack. Um, yes. Yes, there have been. I mean, before, in the earliest days, when the framework was just the, 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 this big annotated outline, uh, before, the, uh, uh, before PowerPoint um, descended upon <laughs> us in all its glory, um, uh, Part of what we did in, 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 in developing that outline was to do a policy gap analysis on our existing policies and trying to figure out, uh, uh, well, gee, where the gaps are. Um, um, and so uh, we did do that, um, but that didn't, really didn't speak to what you were getting at, which was, oh, here's a policy, but it's saying the wrong thing. And we did run into situations like that, where in trying to fill in the cells in those tables using the framework, um, uh, somebody would say, but hey, our existing policy says, uh, says we only have to do that, not that. That's a lot more work. Why, why do we have to do that? Um, and um, in some cases, we concluded that um, uh, the existing policy needed to be revamped. Since, for example, your corporation works with the government, mm -hmm. that they have their own policies that have to be in place within your your policy specifications. Um, for example, uh, if let's say you're doing a contract with uh, something that deals with health, uh, and then you have to look at the HIPAA specifications, and if your if your uh, 
policy specifications do not map onto HIPAAs in one way, shape, or form, then it's not really just a judgment that you guys make. It's also, it, it's also part of what they specify they need. Yeah, let me see them all the way back here to try and address that. Um, okay, well, first and foremost, um, legal, the, the framework um, recognizes and incorporates legal requirements. Legal requirements are legal requirements. Uh, we have to do them. Um, you know, having said that, if you've looked at the security rules, if you've looked at the privacy rules, uh, you know that there's some flexibility there. And um, uh, so it, it isn't all sort of cut and dried. Um, okay, I think I'm getting almost to where I want to be. Yes. Um, uh, where was it? Okay, never mind. I'm not going to find it now. Um, so, number one, yes. I mean, if, if we're bound by law or regulation to uh, do something a particular way, then uh, that's what we do. And um, uh, the, the framework certainly um, is intended to, um, uh, to reflect that. Um, it's also the case that we get sponsors who say, well, I want you to treat all information connected with this project this way, or I want you to treat all, um, all of the stuff marked uh, that we're giving you marked FOUO, that's for official use only, uh, with this level of protection. The framework uh, provides for default levels. In the absence of any other direction from the sponsor, it's, uh, it basically says, this is what you do. This is what you do for FOUO. This is what you do for this, that, or the other thing. If the sponsor says, do this, MITRE does this, regardless of what the framework says. Thank you. Thank uh you. -huh.